Hi, this is Michael Curtis, and you are listening to Save for Half, so roll them if you got them. school games and the modern games inspired by them. Welcome to episode one of the Save for Half podcast. Yes, I know we already have an episode two out, but we're traveling back in time to make our first episode. And it works because we're talking about the Foss's Doctor Who role-playing game from 1980s, 1985, I believe. And with you is, as always, the guy who loves Time Lord Collars, DM Mike. <laughs> and I am joined by... The woman who would have been the Sarah Jane Smith of her day if there hadn't already been one, DM Liz. Hi. And with me also is the Santaran Scotsman, DM Jim. Oh, greetings, programs. And our <laughs> own canine himself, DM Corbett. Affirmative. Exactly. <laughs> and so. Archie, I'm we... going to have to ask you to hit me in the head with the shovel. <laughs> All <the time. laughs> I'll do that for you. So, Doctor Who, 1985, Fossa, put out with, curiously, the Tom Baker and Leela on the front. Uh, Tom Baker's fourth Doctor, but at the time in Britain, it was actually the sixth Doctor. Curious. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> They're time traveling traveling too. Yeah, yeah. Great well. minds and all that. And he was in the middle of Trial of a Time Lord, where he's being persecuted by the 12th Doctor. Huh? But they'll yeah, never get that uh, far. John Nathan Turner, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. The 12th Doctor? Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, so, first impressions, guys. We'll start with Jim. Oh, start with me. Guest, guest hosting yeah. a podcast yeah. I just quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is sort of your goodbye episode, so i got to get my DM Jims in. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I owned this. I bought it off the shelf in the day. We played it just a little bit, and for reasons I'm sure we'll go into later, we didn't stick with it for very long. It was a treat going back and looking at it with 2017 eyes because it, holy crap, I forgot how they used to write rule books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah, mean, it's 1985, so it doesn't have the same suite of excuses 1976 Metamorphosis Alpha had. Right, or even like a 1980. No, this is 85. They're well into more, God help me, I'm using the term state of the art <laughs> for 1985. Anyway, Corbett? Uh, well, I actually owned it, too. Lucky ducks. I, I, I really loved it at the time, and I played it once or twice, and it was kind of difficult to play, but I still love it because it's got the Fossa logo on it, and I play a lot of Star Trek. Well, again, we go into later, and there's a reason why that did not work as well for Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. DM Liz. <laughs> I did not own it at the time... But most of my role-playing games that I owned at that time, mid-80s, it was pretty much all TSR product. So I didn't actually get to see this game in action at all until, I think it was after you and I got married, Mike. So <laughs> it was a long time before I actually was able to, you know, look at this for the first time. But first impressions at that point, yeah, games had changed in their layout and the way things are put together. And so it's it does suffer a little bit in comparison. If I had had it back in the day, I probably would not have batted much of an eye at it because you know, I'm all about my, my home's basic D&D &D and 
that had some problems in where things should be. <laughs> these the V's where other things are in the book itself. So, you know, I probably would have thought, yeah, this is just how most things are put out. <laughs> well, you don't know what you don't know when you don't know it. Exactly. Yeah. So... <laughs> Okay. Well, I did not own it either because I was on a really tight budget in the 1980s, so I had a chance to either get Doctor Who or Star Trek, and I ended up getting Star Trek. Good choice. Oh, sorry. So, <laughs> well, I certainly thought so at the time. Looking at it now, and I... Ooh... Well, we'll talk about it later, but my first impressions, just with the game itself and everything, was a little cold. First impressions, I felt like I was reading Traveler with some Doctor Who-isms in it. Now, Traveler's a great game. I love it. But it's not very conducive to the Doctor Who genre, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So, anyway, just to give everybody a quick idea of character generation in this game, it's got six attributes, more or less the ones we're familiar with, even though they use, like, mentality instead of intelligence. Numbers run from 6 to 30, averaging 6 to 15. You end up with six in each of the six attributes, and then you roll two dice, add it to 36, and that's your point by to bring up your stuff and get your skills. Skills kind of have a tier rank, going from one one to seven, with one being awful and seven being godlike, you know everything there is to know about. Anything I'm missing, guys? I was going to point out, it does have intelligence. From what I got, mentality was sort of a wisdom. Like oh, okay. Mental yeah. ability. So, I'm not quite sure how they meant it. More of a willpower-y kind of thing. Yeah, kind of a timey-wimey type of uh, <laughs> mentally, mentally wentily. Well, <laughs> some game design hoops they had to jump through so that the... Hu- the players that played human companions didn't feel gypped, so everybody had the same abilities. It just was different skills. Mm. Yeah. That stuff about a Time Lord is essentially human. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get your regenerations oh. and stuff. Oh, one other first impression of rereading it was the huge amount of echoes you get from Star Trek. Like, they definitely took whole paragraphs and just cut them from one and put them in the other. When they're talking about species and exploring planets and certain things... I guess I go into that later in the top five, but okay, enough of that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing that there was a lot of overlap between Star Trek rules and for the Doctor Who game. So, but yeah, I think from a historical game design viewpoint, what Corbett's talking about is very interesting because both RPGs are licenses, and both are licensing properties that don't put a heavy emphasis on personal combat, which everybody played D&D at this point was used to because I know in the case of the Star Trek game that precedes this they had like four designs before they got the one they wanted because everybody just kept writing Star Trek D&D and it was combat heavy and FASA and Paramount didn't want that yeah traveler-esque which is very militarized right okay well then I guess let's go into top five all righty Top five. Oh, this ought to be fun. <laughs> and I am going to exercise lead host privilege and call on DM Corbett. No. Okay. <laughs> okay, my first one's a bad one. But I think it's my first impression of opening the box back up after a long time. I have mm-hmm. forgotten how absolutely bland the covers are. I did look it up, though, and there's actually two different prints of the box. There's a there's a box with a painted print, and there's a box with a photo print. I have the box with the painted print, which has yeah, all... Yeah, that's what we have. Yeah, there's a photo print one that's supposed to be done in a Victorian-style printing for the, all the rule books. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like a brown paper or a... Um, Sort of a parchmenty. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen it, so I can't say like that. But that sounds like a good way to print a Doctor Who book. <laughs> I've got it right. In, I've got them right in front of me. No, no. There you go, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. These these aren't my old ones. I had to go get a set on eBay. Oh, um, uh, all before the might of his preparation, foo. But that was something that really jumped out at me right away. Was the the covers, even comparison to uh, Star Trek, because Star Trek covers were blue and they were kind of yeah. simple, but they felt okay. Okay. Whereas the, the it was just a picture of the TARDIS and straight blueprint on white paper. Yeah, I I know what you mean. I kind of got that, you know, looking at them too. It's like these are 
kind of plain looking. (laughs) All right, DM Liz. All right, my number five. And we've kind of gone into this already, but um, uh, the, the whole thing about the similarity between that and the Star Trek rules, and it kind of feels like, well, yeah, Fossa should have taken, in my opinion, a more lighthearted approach to the show when writing up the rules for it. And it, I got the impression they were using the existence of the Star Trek rules as a crutch to make the writing of the game easier. And they didn't change the tone very much at all when they were doing it. There are places here and there where they do try to inject some lightheartedness into it, but the overall read of it is, this is a game about Doctor Who, and it sort of feels like you're reading a technical manual. (laughs) Yeah, and I'll just say that the guys at FASA originally started doing traveler supplements and i think that kind of shows that way of yeah um, that way of writing and speaking of which i'll unless you is there anything else liz Mm, no no that's pretty much all i had to say about it okay (laughs) my number five is a bad one really you don't actually get to (laughs) character generation until page 25 in the player's book. We were talking about this the other day. What the heck? I mean, you know, it start, the book starts with a what is an RPG. That's great. I always like that. And then you're starting to list the skills and attributes and abilities and just like, well, what does any of this have to do? Because uh, let's define everything. And, and then, then tell you how to make a character. Or, or uh, even like you said, let's define everything, then let's have a short fiction piece, and then we'll tell you how to create the character. Mike, yeah. I think your point is cogent, well presented, and in this case, entirely <laughs> correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what's your number five, Jim? <laughs> I'm going to go general and then get specific, but in general, this game is a game design fossil of a bygone age of game design, and it is completely worthy of purchasing and studying just for that. Hmm. I hadn't I hadn't looked at the rules in 30 years, and I'm and you can see where like we're going to discuss about the intricacies of the combat system. Even though it's 1985, it's still clearly written by a group of people who came up through war gaming. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and there and it's it's it. The mechanics are all those initial expressions of things that flowered later in games like GURPS and, and uh, Call of Cthulhu, where they're they're trying to work in a skill system, but it's like it, it's not just tiered within the skill system. There's like okay, your your stats, your special abilities, then you're rolling point spending points on your skills, and then you got to get to your personality, and it's all very granular. And like Liz was saying back in the day, we would have just we we did we just ate stuff like that up and didn't think twice about it. I look at it now and I'm like. This is like an achy, achy, oh, somebody pronounced the half lizard bird for me. <laughs> achy, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's, is it a dinosaur or is it a bird? I think, that, I think that was my favorite thing about revisiting these rules. Okay. Mm. All right, then. Number four, Corbett. Let me, um, let me see, let me, let me find a good one. Just a minute. Let me, uh, okay, hold on. That, yes, no, less people uh, think we're just going to be hating on this game. No, we're really not. <laughs> no, not, not good. Liz, not good. you, okay, Liz, why don't you give yours while Corbett's looking? No, 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 I have a good one. I have a good one. God. Okay. I can't do a joke on this show. <laughs> no, no, you can't. <laughs> I'm just joking. I can't do a joke anyway. Uh, no, no. I, I actually have something I did like in the making of a character that I thought was actually really kind of cool and would be useful in an, any other game system and this one too. And I, I, it's funny how they made the rule and then ignored it the rest of the, the game. But anyway, uh, they have a trait that's called personality traits. And they, they rig it up where you pick out uh, one to three because they have three lines in the... Um, on the character sheet for basic personality traits, talky, uh, pretentious. Uh, they're, they're really simple and they all, they have like 15 or 16 different choices. I think that would be the really quick way, like in a D and D game to go, all right, you're a fighter, jump in and pick a personality trait. I'm loud. Okay. You're loud. So you, that's what you play. And they portray it as a way to do doctor from generation to generation. And I thought it was great, but then they ignored it when they did the NPCs. Yeah. Well, didn't they, initially say you have to roll randomly to get your personality but then they immediately contradict that by saying if the player doesn't want that personality let him roll again or just pick and like then Mm -hmm. why are you rolling just 
let them pick. Why? Why do you need to roll? <laughs> why? Well, because presume... it's 1985. That's why. <laughs> well, I presume it's because they didn't quite define the difference between humans and time lords, or time lords and everybody else. I think that's mm-hmm. where the conflict came in for the uh, game. But as far as a rule, that's not a bad idea to give any character you make in any game a basic personality. Like here, yeah. even a cookie cutter personality is better than nothing. Yeah, and if you've got somebody who can't think of anything for their character, then it, I, I could see plausibly. Well, roll some dice. We'll see what comes up. You mm-hmm. know? It's certainly a way to throw down the role playing gauntlet, so that you're not just playing this time lord like the last seven temperamental, chaotic fire mages you played. <laughs> That's true. In a way, it would force you to try to stretch your your role playing chops a little. It's like, okay, I'm going to play a whiny, sadistic little person. That would not be something that comes naturally to me as a character. So, and it would be hard for me, but it would force me to try that out. Okay. Was that Tegan or Adric? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of Turlo, actually. Oh, yes, I was thinking. Although yeah. he did God, I hated him. redeem himself in the end. This so. is true. Not to me. He was still a whiny little prat. <laughs> oh, who I, should not have been wearing swimming trunks. Hey, I found out yeah, some Doctor yeah, Who well. trivia. Mm. But I'm going to say it anyway, so I sound like I'm the one who found it. Okay. Tom Baker hated the actor who played Adric and wanted him to be like uh, Manuel, or Man, is it Manuel from Faulty Towers? So he could just yell <laughs> at him and hit him and stuff because he thought he was a terrible actor. So for uh-huh. those of you who hate Adric, there you go. There you go. Tom Baker agrees with you. Well, I had heard that they did not get along. I think there was an interview with Matthew Waterhouse where he was reminiscing about it and how, according to him anyway, he was saying that he had held Tom Baker in such high esteem. And it was very troublesome to the young him at the time that that was not returned (laughs) and just seemed to be considered a bother on the set more than anything else. All right. Well, what's your number four then, Liz? My number four. Well... I think... um, Did you uh, just do the Elizabeth Montgomery well? Well. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Well, that's a deep subject. Okay. Um, I love in the game operator's manual, and I guess we probably should point out at some point in this, that the rules are broken up into three separate booklets. You've got the player's book, the game operators or the GM's book, and then you've got something called the source book for field agents. And this is coming from the game operators booklet here. There's a section called Steps in Adventure Scenario Design, and they stayed at one point, which I thought was just awesome, and it's the way I love to have games go. Players need to feel that there are rewards for acting openly and honestly for placing trust in selected non-player characters, and for being champions of the good side. And that just made me all warm and tingly when I read that. It's like, yes! (laughs) Which was code for the time that the Time Lord and his companions cannot murder NPCs and loot their bodies. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you should be playing good people, and players should be rewarded (laughs) for being good. Yes! (laughs) Okay, well, I will say something good, and this is from the player's manual. Or, actually, no, I think it is the game operator's manual. But anyway, the book says that anyone who has a tier 3 in a skill should not have to roll except for extreme circumstances. Mm. They just do it. And I love that. I hate those RPGs where, oh, you want to pick up a phone? Make a dex check. (laughs) (laughs) Pushing that door closed. Better make a strength check. Oh, come on. I have a plus three in door closing. (laughs) Damn. Critical fail on my door closing. Comes back, smashes you in the head, and now your foot's stuck under the door. Ah! (laughs) So I was very happy for that. Jim? Well, to talk about the same section that Liz is talking about, my number four is how this 
game was produced by a whole design team, but I think the head writer was uh, the cat William John Wheeler. And he had already by 1985 game design philosophy developing that he wrote into this game that was basically a response to don't be like everything that's been published up to that point. It's The adventure scenario is not a railway with stops. <laughs> and, he, and he talks about that in that. And it's, it's, it's interesting from a historical per- perspective, and your mileage may vary depending on which kind of game design you prefer, but he was... He was right out in the front of that curve of the players should have many successful avenues to resolution of the adventure, not just from here to there, go get, you know, beat up the bad guy and take his stuff. <laughs> Again, I, I suppose, which should be noted for the mid-80s, there is some attempt to get players out of the drunken homicidal kleptomaniac with a treasure map mindset that everybody got from D&D. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love my D&D. But that sort of play doesn't work in all RPGs. He was clearly writing his adventure design advice in the Doctor Who role-playing game as a a counter and a response to that school of thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, Corbett. Number three. That was a good thing. That was a good thing, right? Oh, yeah. No, it's totally good. Especially for 1985. (laughs) It was was kind of that Call of Cthulhu thinking that you can tell a story and everybody can still die and it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I think it anticipated that and uh, Steve Jackson and GURPS, too. Yeah. Yeah. Corbett, oh. number three. I would like to give a backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and we've already mentioned this many times, and if you don't know this by now, it's got a lot of combat rules. I mean, it's very, very yeah. laden in combat rules. And I think I, I'm not a big fan of... I, I could point out many, 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 many points in the combat rules of problems I had with it. <laughs> But in defense of it, there was one doctor in my mind that I would say this would work perfect for, John Pertwee. Because number John, three John Pertwee, is your number three. Yeah, it's my number three. This would be a great John Pertwee setting because John Pertwee's like always running out and doing kung fu on people. Unit's always showing up and shooting people. Yeah, I was people. about to say, with Unit, yeah, he's always got a horde of soldiers on hand. I think if you were playing a John Pertwee game, this would work. Not perfectly, but it would work. Well, I just found it hilarious that in the player's manual, combat takes up about half of the entirety of that book and all throughout the rest of the booklets it's saying that players are encouraged to avoid combat except as a last resort <laughs> and yet so much of the rules describe how to do combat it's like well, wait and, a minute and it's crunchy board gamey combat i mean just in the tables in the back of the book the to hit sequence outline yeah. It's 11 numbers long. These are the things you have to do to hit another character in combat. A lot of it, I noticed, was directly lifted from the Traveler box game slash board game supplement snapshot, which is basically, you know, you're running around on a ship and fighting borders or other weird things. And yeah, very, I mean, it says tactical movement. Tactical is a word that should almost never come up in a Doctor Who game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, no, not tactical. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a fleet of orbiting Zygon ships about to be tactical on the whole planet, and the Doctor defeats them with a speech. Exactly. <laughs> or reverses the polarity of the neutron flow. Okay. And Liz, your number three. My number three. All righty. Uh, well, I could not help but notice, and I probably would not have not noticed this if I had bought it back in the day, because I didn't know as much about Doctor Who then as I feel that I do now. There's probably still a lot I don't know. Fossa took a lot of, shall we say, artistic license regarding the past history of the Master, um, <laughs> um, at one point when they're talking about him in the field agent source book, they space, they even state that he was actually the meddling monk. And it's like, oh, no, right, right, right. No, yeah. no he was not. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're exactly right. Cause like in the game canon, Adric didn't die. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he was saved at the last moment. It's like, what? <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, and I can understand in some instances if you're making a game and you need to 
reference something that never came up at all one way or the other within the show or the book series or whatever that you have the license to. You know, you kind of have to fill in some gaps to make things more comprehensive. I don't think that they needed to say that the master was the meddling monk. You know, why? Why would you do that? Um, but yeah, if I had bought it at the time and read it in 1985, I would never have known that that was not the case. I would have um, accepted that as fact and might have made a fool of myself if I had mentioned it to someone who knew more about Doctor Who than I did later on. And ironically, this is the amusing part when Corbett was ta- talking about the combat system and you're mentioning combat's half the book. Part of their goal for this game was to create a role-playing system that would draw in Doctor Who fans that weren't necessarily gamers and try to make them gamers through this game. And I have no statistics, but I would find it very <laughs> difficult to believe that that succeeded. Well, this is actually the same. Here's the 11-step combat system. Go for it. <laughs> oh, man, 11 I'm steps. I'm a little more forgiving of that than it sounds like you are, Liz, because how, how should I say this? At the time, in 1985, Doctor Who in America, which was to be the primary audience for the game, we were just watching it on PBS. You know, mm-hmm. nobody yeah. knew who the hell Doctor Who was as far as – and I don't think the licensees licensed as strictly as they do in 2017 where, you know, you have to get it all right and pass muster before Disney or BBC or whoever lets you loose with a published book. Yeah, and I kind of got the impression that BBC really didn't care much one way or the other what FASA did with the license well, as FASA long as – was the first company, role-playing company, I think, to actually – pursue these licenses rather than just making a generic uh, space game or a fantasy game. I, um, well, Corbett can probably back me up, but uh, the Star Trek game, the fastest Star Trek game was the same thing because it came out in the mid-80s. That's before Star Trek The Next Generation. That's in the middle of yep. the movie. So they made up a bunch of canon and drew it from novels and well, fan fiction and all kinds of places. And if you go back and read it now, you're like, hey, this is all wrong. Well, the Klingons aren't right. Well, but the thing is, there's an interesting take on This is a good point. They lost their license for Star Trek because of some of that. They started just putting things in and filling in gaps that they figured needed to be filled. And they made the entire, I think it was the officer's manual or maybe the next generation manual when, before the actual show had aired, they just put it out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And they got in trouble over that and lost the license. So obviously that, that sort of loose feel with the rules and the, the canon was what got them in trouble to begin with. I guess BBC just didn't worry about it as much. Well, I will say I enjoyed that when they were describing the master and they had the, a stat line for looks sinfully attractive. <laughs> Has he still got that rubbish beard? Has he still got that rubbish beard? No. Well, a wife. <laughs> what? Huh? Okay. Well, my number three, I really liked the fiction bit. Tabby Cat and Time Lords. I liked how it you read through and then in the middle it says, okay, go do this part of character generation, then come back, read more. And basically, they're giving you a a fictional version of it, and then how to do it with game mechanics. I thought that was a nifty way to walk people through. It would have been even better if it hadn't been on page 18 (laughs) in the player's manual. (laughs) But, yeah, I thought that was good. I thought the character was funny. The game was kind of like a David Tennant episode with the cat burglar lady. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. that's. I mentioned that to Liz. It's like, you know, if it wasn't 1985, it was one of the Tenet Christmas spe- Easter specials or something. And I kind of wonder if maybe that that wasn't a a vague tip of the hat to that. A teeny intentional or Intentional or not. That's totally what happened, Liz. I can see it now. It's, there's poor Stephen Moffat in front of his computer, completely written out after five seasons. He's like, give me that game book. <laughs> okay, the new doctor is going to be an old, dice sound, Scotsman dice sound, but with a heart of gold. He plays the guitar. Okay, Jim, you're number three. I'm not gainsaying, Liz. The main thing I enjoyed about this game, because like I said at the front of the program, we only played it a couple times, was um, the amount of canon that was in it. It's it's very it's it's a 1985 of the modern Cubicle Seven Doctor Who role playing game, and the modern uh, Doctor Who role playing game has got. I mean, it, this is a playstop reference. I'm not banging on the system, but it's got that kind of storytelling system, and I don't know why story points bother me when luck points don't, but they do. But I have purchased every single 
one of those hardbacks because I'm a Doctor Who fan and it's a tremendous resource to consult for all the intricacies of the of the canon. Mm-hmm. And this was like a 1985 version of that. Oh, I We're don't have a problem for- with their their canon canoness <laughs> in other places. It just kind of really struck me that they were making up a lot of stuff for the master. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be more so there than elsewhere. <laughs> well, I Which thought it was entirely- odd. Go ahead. I was just saying Liz was entirely correct because I want her to keep liking me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do know that they did these weird double book things for the Daleks and the Cybermen, you know, selling two books, one for players, one for GMs. Then they did a, one double pack just on the master, which I thought is, okay, you have got to be making stuff up because in 1985, there wasn't that much available on the master, not two books worth. Well, actually, wasn't he off the show at that point? The the last actor who played the master had stopped playing him, and that's why the Ronnie showed up, I thought. Is that true? Huh? Uh, that, An- Anthony, Anthony Amley, wasn't it? Who, who Anthony was the second Amley master? never left. They, 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 they had to drag him out kicking and screaming. He was in, like, <laughs> dimensions of time with <laughs> Mr. Bean, for crying out loud. Okay. All right. Well, uh, then number two, Corbett. Okay. Should I go happy or, or not happy? Your call. I don't know. I, I kind of follow, follow your heart. heart. Roll a die. <laughs> because it's 1985. You need a chart. Uh, you know, yes, actually, consult the table. I have a happy thing. I, I thought it was pretty good, though I think you've already said you hated it, Mike, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, when you're when you're building your companion or slash your own doctor, uh, they, they pretty much let you go wild with whatever you want to make. I mean, there's some of it's random, and some of it's keep saying, like, well, if you don't like that, just don't take it and put something else <laughs> it's it's a little frustrating but I, I thought about it you you pick up alien companions just as much as you pick up people from different periods and you could really have a very wildly put together group of travelers that could be interesting it, it could almost be victorian-esque in a sense as far as like uh, victorious sorry little callback for your game by the way tagline blatant plug blatant plug blatant plug (laughs) but no i could see like a time traveling game where everybody's running through and you have a superhero and you have a detective and you have a weird robot guy and you just everybody's doing their own little thing because they have a pretty wide variety of options so that's my good thing by and the point by means you can pretty much customize your characters so yeah very champions that way yeah okay liz Alrighty. Hmm. Number two. What should I choose? Okay. Well, this one's neither really here, neither here nor there. Now, you've got your usual thing where you're telling new people who've never gamed before, these are what the various stats are. This is what they mean. And bless their hearts, once again, they gamely attempt to tell players that charisma does not mean attractiveness. That it's more of a personal magnetism. And you could have a character, even if you've got a low charisma score, he or she could be very attractive, but just not know how to interact with people very well. And kudos to them for making the attempt. It probably did not work, but, you know, I salute them for trying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funny you should mention kudos for trying. Because my number two is from the back of the game operator's manual, and I don't know the exact page, but basically they had a whole article advising the game master on how to make sure your players stay in genre and don't use the TARDIS as the breaching charge for a commando attack. <laughs> we'll all just get in the TARDIS. Ha ha, can't get us. We're going to go over here. All right, go out. Guns blazing. Now, all this very detailed stuff to try to... No, you don't play like that. You can't use a TARDIS like that. The doctor does not carry double plasma guns, you know, or any Time Lord, really. Mine does. K9 has not been modified with a rocket launcher. No. Well, Mike, you're describing a heavy combat system, and I don't remember seeing anything like that in the... uh the book yeah I know. maybe i'm just tra- for some reason i'm thinking traveler yeah. <laughs> so, I, don't, I don't really know oh well jim 
Well, I'm going to talk about the thing that's always on my mind whenever it's a licensed RPG. Um, when we did try to play this, the reason it didn't stick is the group I ran it for were a bunch of D&Ders who immediately did try to use the TARDIS to break game and you know, wanted to kill everything in sight. They did the same thing in Champions. I sent them off with bonus <laughs> build points and they came back with five superhero Viking and a superhero magician and a superhero dwarf. They just couldn't break those chains. And Night, it, Knights of the dinner table here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and and it's partly endemic of the group we played with, because the one guy who saw Doctor Who besides me, nobody else even knew Doctor Who. All he wanted to do was find, find Sarah Jane Smith and Boner. That was his goal. <laughs> <laughs> But whenever you license property for RPGs, people do it based on cultural popularity, not game mechanics. Mm. So, you know, Star Trek, who wants to sit around and take orders from the one player who gets to be the cap? Doctor Who, who wants to be the humans because only one of you gets to be a Time Lord? You know, these are things that are always tricky and, and for me and my gaming group, not particularly fun. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, no, I had a solution for that, both in Star Trek and actually Ghostbusters and a couple other things. When, whenever I'm running a game that's uh, pop culture based, I, I found out that everybody's used to the idea of a commercial break and everybody's used to a bathroom break in gaming. So I would use that moment to shift the game and change everybody's characters. If we're playing the, the pop culture characters, we're playing the, the Doctor Kirk's and his companions Spock. or, yeah, oh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That way. So everybody gets a chance to be Kirk. Yeah, and everybody gets a chance to be McCoy. And everybody gets yeah. a chance to be Chekhov. <laughs> Woohoo! You know, dice were invented in Russia. <laughs> but you kind of know what I mean. Think, things vary. I mean, like Star Wars, on the other hand, makes a great RPG because you can just be a bunch of pirates banging around in your version of the Millennium Falcon, go tear up the Empire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of going off what you were saying, you know, about the guy looking for Sarah Jane, that's another thing I've run into. You get these players who, okay, I'm in Star Wars, I go to Tatooine, find Luke, and blow his head off. Yeah. Or I'm going to go grab Princess Leia before she's even kidnapped off this ship. You know, basically, their main goal in life seems to be to destroy the continuity. Yeah. What you going to do now? <laughs> yeah. Ha ha. You know, when we were teenagers, nothing was beneath us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> okay. Corbett, carry us into number one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you can do it. I can. Come I, on. I can do it. I'm, I'm going to steal one from Mike on this one. I didn't like the skills. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really, I've done this with Star Trek, too. I've, I've dumped some of the useless skills, like... Okay, Star Verbal Trek. interaction. Yes, that's a number one God, for me. I hate that. Well, I was thinking weapons actually was my first stuff I was going to point out because they have a huge list of weapons in Star <laughs> Trek. Really, you only need one weapon and it disintegrates your opponent. So <laughs> you're stunned or you're dead. Yeah, there, there's no need to worry about like, well, you're either going to get in a hand to hand fight or you're going to pick up a phaser and there you go. To sit there and go, I need a sword skill. I need a skill in mid 16th century rapier. <laughs> Come yeah, on, guys. I have it. <laughs> yeah, you, my, you need my to have the two-fisted Kirk punch. Mm. <laughs> Which would be a skill. You know, the two hands together, and you just, like, wham on top of someone's back or head or whatever. Yeah. But see, the AP system kind of covers that. It tells you, like, it costs this much to do it. You go forward, and, and I was okay with that. But I just mm -hmm. think, like, the skill system I don't have a problem with in general because it's like, supposed to be a Cthulian style game where you're solving a mystery and, and pulling out the story. But I kind of felt like, yeah, verbal interaction, haggling. You're either going to get it or you're not. It doesn't matter. You don't need to roll to see if you get it. It's, yeah. Corbett, you must know Mike pretty well because I could totally see Chase running this for your, you guys down in Denton and Mike sitting there going, what do you mean I can't fly the TARDIS? I've got TARDIS pilot. Yeah, but you don't have dimensional sextant. <laughs> <laughs> He'd do that too. Uh, th At there this was, point, yeah. he'd do it just to annoy you. Yeah. I hate gamers who do that. I hate playing with gamers who do that. <laughs> That's my job. Anyway. Okay. Um, Liz? All righty. My number one... Okay, like I mentioned before, they tried to insert some little lighthearted bits and pieces into the game itself, even though the rules as a whole, like I said, tend to read like a technical manual. But they did try to insert little humorous bits in there to give you the flavor of the game. You know, at some points, you've got 
various items where they're talking about, you know, how humans act, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there'll be these little end notes or footnotes placed in. It's like, this is from a talk that the doctor gave, it's like his one and only lecture at the Predonian Academy and <laughs> things like that. And also my favorite instance of this is when they're describing equipment that can be found in the TARDIS. And one of the things that is listed as TARDIS equipment is jelly babies. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah. That I, is, I, that's a piece of special TARDIS equipment, jelly babies. <laughs> very important. Well, my number one kind of plays off that, too. It's one line in the back of the game operator's manual talking about K-9. And it's obvious, but I love the way it was phrased. The K-9 is naturally immune to disease, drugs, illness, <laughs> hypnosis, and all other things to which flesh is air. Ooh. <laughs> flesh is air. Like, oh, that's flesh awesome. Is air. Now you should have wrote the whole book like that. That would have been cool. <laughs> it wouldn't read like a technical manual. <laughs> that it was like read like a Shakespearean play. Forsooth. <laughs> that was like a paragraph I would write that Michael Curtis came in and finished the sentence for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did the first half, he did the second. To which flesh is air. Okay, that's my number one, and it's up to you, Jim, to round my, us all out. My number one is the, my favorite single thing about this game that has Gallifrey all to do with the game itself. Minis, minis, minis. FASA put out the best Doctor Who minis for this game there have ever been. I mean, there have been two or three licensed miniature companies after this that do Doctor Who minis and a nether sphere full of knockoffs and none of them was, were as good or am I as fond of as the FASA Doctor Who minis. They came in little TARDIS boxes instead of blister boxes. Oh, that's cool. And you're like, one was the five doctors, one was player character time lords, one was like a little box of unit soldiers. They were awesome. Good Daleks, good Cybermen. Well, a good 80s version of Cybermen. Yeah, the one with the handles on the side of the head kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Perfect for your tactical Doctor Who game. <laughs> I, I would totally play a unit game. Don't get me wrong, because I love Torchwood. It was fun to watch. And I, I think the military aspect is not something I would completely ignore. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm going yeah. off the wrong tangent. Miniatures were awesome, though. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, let's uh, take a break. Commercial announcements. And then we'll wrap up with our best work. From outer space, the famous TARDIS brings Time Lord, Doctor Who, and the amazing Leela, ready to do battle against their mighty enemies, the fearful Cyberman, the giant robot, and one of the deadly Daleks. Whilst Leela covers him, the Doctor reaches the TARDIS in time and disappears to escape from the Dalek. Doctor Who, Leela, the fearful inhabitants of outer space, and the TARDIS, from Dennis Fisher, fantastic. All right, guys, we're back, and let's sum up. First, we'll talk about which parts of the game we feel made the save and which crit failed their save. And we'll start with Corbett. Dang it. <laughs> Actually, You've I got to sit in the back. Or, or, I, I meant to ask you this. Are we going to do both at the same time? Because mine is both. Yeah. Okay. Tricky. No, no. I, I really, I think it's a pretty much agreed that we all have a problem with the combat system and its frustrations. But at the same time, I agree with Jim's point that it is a, it's a fossil and that sounds like it's an old piece of junk. But I can see all the little touches that become other games later down the road. The, mm -hmm. the 2D6 system, it, it's like an awesome echo coming from Champions and going through to Star Wars and Icons and, you know, on into the future. And that's kind of right cool. That's like a step in the motion that we're going forward with. And that's, uh, that's really cool. At the same time, you look at the system and you go, oh, it's clunky and awkward, but sometimes those systems have to make way for the next system. And that's the best and the worst of it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Liz? What do you think makes the save? Oh, well, making the save... Oh, man. I do think 
in the end, th- this is a game that I would not mind playing. Things I've said, you know, just set that all aside about, you know, oh, they said the master was the meddling monk. You know, that doesn't kill the game. You know, the, these rules are crunchy. You know, even that doesn't kill the game, you know, so much. Because we've had, we've played second edition. We've played, we've played champions. We've played other games, you know, that that are full of crunch and full of math, etc. But the thing that really sets the game apart for me is that despite everything, there is a thread that runs through it, very similar to one of the things that I gushed over when we talked about James Spawn's The Hero's Journey. In the end, this whole game is set up for you are on the side of the forces for good. You are supposed to try and be the best and noblest type of individual that you can be in this game. Not only are you trying to protect your planet, but you're trying to protect the time stream, you're trying to protect the the universe itself working and for the CIA <laughs> ex- yeah you know as a as a character in this game a very vast responsibility for you know trying to protect everything is being placed on your shoulders and i think it's it's cool. a it's a situation where you are trying to reach to be something better than yourself a good moral compass. Yes, that, that for, is where it makes the save. And to clarify for listeners, CIA is the Celestial Intervention Agency. They're the <laughs> underground. I was going to say, I don't want any you know feds knocking on my front door. Right. <laughs> it's they're an underground two, group of time lords that actually believe you should try to stop evil, whereas the rest of the time lords just sit around and watch. So they pawns. Pretty much. They're pawnsers. Okay, what fails the save, Liz? So many <laughs> tables. <laughs> oh my god, there are so many tables for things. And I don't have a problem with the with having tables in a game, but there are a billion tables in this game and half of them I really don't think you need to have at all. I think my head exploded when I got to the interaction matrix. <laughs> a table so large it took up the entirety of a single page. Eight and a half by eleven. And action point costs for movements, including things like how many action points do you have to spend in order to sit from a standing position. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Tables. 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 Okay. Well, as far as I'm concerned, what makes the save is that fiction. I not only thought it was kind of fun, I kind of like how they tried to have the master at the end being scarred and burned horribly to imply what happens in uh, The Keeper of Trocken, which comes up in The Fourth Doctor. The only time Tom Baker actually ran into the master. I like that. I like the way it gapped and told you to go try a particular section of the rules, and then when you've done that, come back and continue reading. It would have been better if it was in the front, but I still think that really makes a save. You're my favorite hard-ass, sir. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. (laughs) My fails the save is the whole tactical combat system. I think... I think for a game like Doctor Who, you need something very basic and free-flowing. I mean, even, in my opinion, classic D&D would work better as a combat system than this one. A lot of it should be abstracted, because combat really isn't the focus. So as far as I'm concerned, that's what fails the save for me. Jim? Making the save... All of time, all of space, everything that ever was, everything that ever will be. How can you go wrong? Genre mashing in RPGs is my single favorite thing to do. So here's a game with it all built under the hood. Can't think of an adventure? Get an adventure from another game. Any other game. You can use it. So that's making the save. I'm not making the save. I had to go back and thoroughly understand 1976 Metamorphosis Alpha rules because... A couple years ago, I had to write an adventure for publication for that rule system, and it about did me in. And going back and running this would be the same thing. I I wouldn't personally do it. It's fantastic to have as a collectible and as a I'm glad I own it again, even now, but uh, I would never, ever run it again. Okay. If you knew how to run it and it was you, me, Corbett, and Liz playing, sure. 
Kind of like Pathfinder. If it was you guys, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, If it's a good group and I'm not having to run it, sure. Yeah. I'd go with that. All right. And if you agree with us, disagree with us, love it, hate it, want to know who the heck we think we are, write us at saveforhalfpodcast at gmail.com. Unfortunately, we do not have a voicemail yet, but we're working on it. And so, if our listeners will forgive us, we're going to... Go down the Bill Bixby Hulk Dusty Road. Hey, before we go down the road, can I do an announcement? Please. Sure. Yeah, I just want to say uh, I, I came on uh, this first episode of Safe for Half because we kind of didn't do a last goodbye episode of that uh, other podcast. And uh, I just want to thank Mike, you, and Liz for having me on that other podcast. As as you know, I'm suffering from all my dreams coming true and finding you know gainful employment in the uh RPG industry, which is... No mean feat. Yeah, but it is all-consuming, and I couldn't podcast anymore, and I'm glad... I mean, you guys changed my life when you brought me on the show five years ago, uh, and were a part of me finally getting you know my breaks down the road. So thank you for having me all this time. I'm glad that I can still be around to help out in ways I can help out, like hosting the website for this podcast and occasionally showing up and lousing up a whole episode for you. I'm glad I can still do that. <laughs> well, thank you, Jim. I will say with complete honesty, when we were all doing that sodcast, I had the most fun I ever had podcasting. Yeah. And we're going to miss you. Yeah, I, I I hated that. I hated that the three of us had to had to break up. But you know, in a way, it's not forever. It's well, you got not, Corbett. Not Corbett, you're up, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> now, all, we've, all we've, have to Mike do. and I have known Corbett for a long time, many oh, yeah. many years. So we we've got a history, and we've had some good chemistry. We thought with um our guesting on the Gagman podcast, which he also does. If you don't listen to it, you should. Well, <laughs> well plus Corbin has an actual voice for radio as opposed to a veiled Kentucky accent and a mouthful of marbles. <laughs> I'm telling you. Too hard on yourself, sir. <laughs> Max. Oh, and by the way, listeners, <laughs> buy Mutant Crawl Classics when it comes out. <laughs> nah, buy it now. Save time. <laughs> <laughs> This is all about time travel. Just go Very into true. the future, get it, and then a come back. Co- yeah. All right. That's enough of the mushy go stuff. All g- go the all Gil Gerard and project yourself into the future and then buy it. <laughs> You'll just have to picture Corbett spinning. Uh-huh. You know, we can't get yeah. down the podcast. You'll have to imagine it. But now we head down the dusty road, for the not for the last time, hopefully, but for a while. And how are we heading down the dusty road, Jim? Uh, I'm going down the dusty road very proud of myself for having finally made it through an entire podcast. You're welcome, Darva Shriver, without mentioning Goodman Games <laughs> or DCC. <laughs> Uh, until now. So crap. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Corbett? Well, uh, I guess I'm going down the roads, kind of hopping along, trying to put on these gigantic gym shoes and really, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> and really, really <laughs> contemplating, man, you guys talk about Doctor Who a lot on this show, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I am heading down the dusty road. With a TARDIS behind me in a wheelbarrow while I read about how to get it to stop weighing like wood and instead weigh 100,000 kilograms. And Liz? Well, I'm trying to go down the dusty road, but I'm having to make sure that I have enough action points to be able to move completely <laughs> down the road, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it. Oh, just check Up the chart. On the wagon. There's plenty of room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and hopefully we'll go forward in time and catch you at, uh, say, for half, episode three. Yay. Woo-hoo. See ya. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Rearch. <laughs> so there, we're out.
Bye.